to Success Beneath the Surface, hosted by Deborah Fell, Managing Partner at Chief Outsiders. Deborah provides insights specifically for CEOs from growth-oriented companies. My guest today is Tom Zucker, President of Edgepoint Capital Advisors. He and his team of seasoned entrepreneurs work with multi-generational family business owners to help them transition their companies to new owners. This includes helping navigate not just the financial side, but the emotional side of the transaction as well. Today, we will learn about Tom's story and what drives his focus on family businesses. I remember the first time I got a note. It was a handwritten note on the side of a letter that the CEO had gotten from a customer. And he had passed it along to his son, which happened to be my boss, and said, let's get some perspectives on this. So John had passed it on to me. But at the bottom of his note to John, he said, love, dad. Now, this was first of many of this kind of correspondence that I received over the years that I was with this company. And it always made me smile, even though sometimes the directions or comments were quite harsh. So that was a whole interesting part of being in a family business, even though it was actually a public company. Since then, I've worked, Tom, with many family-run companies, both clients and company employers alike. So I have a little bit of a sense of what goes on inside of those businesses, but you have sort of built your career and your company here on working with multi-generational companies. And I'd love to hear your story and what drove you to this type of work and founding and running a business uh, purpose for this. Deborah, thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure. And you're exactly right. I'm blessed with many things. The most of what I've been given in life is a matter of perspective from others. My earliest teacher was my father, and he taught me through his business as well as many other things. My father had a C-Ray dealership, and in the formative years of my life, he was the second generation, and I was to be the third generation. And what a formative life experience. And it became the reason why I do what I do to closely help family business owners, to share my experiences, uh, the good and the bad, but mostly to share the empathy that goes along with being a family business owner. There is a lot of really great things that happen when you work with families and some not so good. And the ability to navigate through the communication and the emotions is much more important than can you do a math equation can you figure out networking capital? Right. It's all about the people. So it sounds like you didn't actually stay on in that role in the family business. Again, curse or blessing, not exactly sure. A wonderful luxury tax was submitted to the business at a time of great expansion, and the company no longer existed. And so my early years, I worked at the business, and then shortly thereafter, as I went into my professional career. I wanted something as far away from entrepreneurship as possible. Okay. That didn't seem to work out so well for you. <laughs> You're back. <laughs> we all are given a certain code that runs our lives and our bodies and our perspectives. Uh, my code is entrepreneurship, family business owners, and the ability to connect in a very real and authentic way with clients. And so it became the impetus behind starting EdgePoint, which is an M&A advisory firm focused on helping and transitioning family-held businesses. And I know it's even beyond that, and we can talk about that too a little bit if you want, but what was interesting when we spoke last time was this notion of helping companies navigate both the transitional and the emotional side 
of transitioning their business. So I guess what you're telling me is that M&A people are people too? <laughs> <laughs> From time to time, that's true. If you think about the process of taking a third generation business, coming to the conclusion that you're going to sell the family, the legacy, the culture, and usually these family-held businesses are in communities where you're really an important piece of the community. Yes. And now you begin the journey of discussion of transition. Yes. Money's always at the table. It's an important consideration that quickly drops from number one to number three mm-hmm. as you start talking about retention of family and ability to put millions of dollars at the table and have family behaving appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking that the family to the person is always fully aligned with what's happening, right? Of course, of course, you know, <laughs> uh, Junior thinks he's highly valued and the market says he's not. An aunt or a cousin that has a minority share in the business wants a very large voice and they should not. Mm-hmm. And, and you navigate that and you navigate that through real live authentic communication in advance. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, you know, post-mortem, you have these dialogues and it, it becomes part of the strategy and, and frankly, what makes it fun. Yeah. And I know your team is a team of entrepreneurs. So you sort of have built your company with people who have had skin in the game. And maybe many of them have come through family businesses, but certainly you have. So are you and they literally at the table discussing these highly charged issues with family members? Or are you directing them to different kinds of counselors that can help them with those, especially in cases of tense, really tense, uh, complex situations? Yeah, that's a great question. I think as you think about M&A advisory, it is kind of a a mission, if you will. And the people that you're serving is is, as strong as a business owner feels at times. Uh, They're some of the most fragile creatures that really require lots of, I'll call it a little bit of ego fulfillment at times. And other times it's counseling. And knowing when to push or knowing when to be sensitive is that EQ factor that's really critical for a good M&A advisor. Yes. And, And being focused on family businesses, the dynamics although different between industries, are very common and the characteristics of what they need and want. And we're truly independent in what we provide. So we don't provide any products. We don't invest any money. We're just pure advisory, mm-hmm. solely focused on that client experience, which we think is very critical. So do you have any stats or any sense of how many family businesses there are in the United States? I realize that's totally putting you on the spot, but all I can say is I'm surprised at how many CEOs of family businesses, A, that I've worked for, because as we were planning to have this discussion, I started counting up, oh my gosh, I've worked with many family businesses. And at Chief Outsiders, we do business with many, many family businesses. And so it would be interesting to know literally how many there are across the country. And I know you're dealing with them at a certain transition point. My vantage point of the marketplace is the preponderance of revenue is generated by the large corporates. The preponderance of employees are employed by small family-held businesses. And, and they range all the way from mom and pop shops to, to very sophisticated enterprises that are owned by a family. And we have seen companies with $5 million in revenue have a much more sophisticated operating system than $300 million companies. So, uh, but the family dynamics are consistent amongst those. And that makes sense. And that's also consistent with information that I've heard in the past. And it's remarkable when you think about it, because we always think of the big corporations, which we all respect and do business with, as having so much contribution, and there is. But in terms of the American economy, 
family <laughs> continues to be a bedrock, but in many more ways, I think, than we really realize. Well, um, and consider the implications. If you do a family transition well, yeah. that enterprise and the people that are employed by the enterprise continue on. Yes. So it's preserving communities. It's preserving jobs. And quite frankly, some of the private equity investments that we see in the lower middle market, you're creating an enterprise that goes from $30 million of revenue to $300 million of revenue. And all of the opportunities get created from that, let alone the wealth that's a byproduct. Is there an example that you could give, obviously, without naming the company, to give us an inside view of how this works? Maybe the good, bad, and the less than pretty parts of it, just to give us an inside view of how this works and what you've seen? Yeah, I'd be happy to share. We treat confidentiality very seriously, as you can imagine. So I will speak in generalities about the business. Yeah. Um, this was a family-held business, second-generation owner, ran and operated a portable machine tool business and did equipment manufacturing and rental. And unfortunately, the owner died just at a point of great expansion, You know, had made major investments. It's always in a capital position. It was challenging. Mm-hmm. And the attorney that was heading up the estate called us and said, we need help. And our answer, unlike many investment bankers, was wait, right? Fix the issues inside the business, fix the problems, wait for the product to evolve to a place that the market was ready for it. And we waited almost two and a half years prior to going to market. The really interesting part of that business was when we got involved, it was fairly close to not very valuable as a status. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the time we got done, that business traded for north of 10 times. The gentleman had a young daughter at the time. And this allowed that young daughter to be the beneficiary of the trustee in the estate. And we worked with the sales manager and we eventually sold that business mm-hmm. to someone with an international footprint to take advantage of that. Oh, wow. and, and that's kind of the, the story of what an investment banker, if they do it well, yeah, the yeah. professional storytellers, you've got to get to the place where you entwine market knowledge, sector yeah. knowledge, and then the empathy that we talked about from a family business perspective. And now it's time for a quick break. CEOs need help growing their companies, but don't always have the time or money to hire a full-time chief marketing officer, CMO, or chief sales officer, CSO, or both. Recruiting a quality full-time executive can take months, not to mention the ongoing cost. In these challenging times, CEOs need battle-tested growth executives who can help companies successfully navigate the uncertain waters. Partner with Chief Outsider CMOs and CSOs who will function as strategic operators to build and execute your growth engines. And we're back with Deborah and Gary. Yeah, so I want to come back to the point you made about how you really are a marketer. (laughs) But in terms of the narrative of this story, so dad, the CEO, passes away. The business does not have a good status. It goes to very successful status, global. Who was running it? What happened on the inside? That's a great question. There was a key salesperson who had some leadership experience, but never had run the business before. Yes. And and so during that period from the time of takeover, post-death, we had to get the head of sales to be the CEO of the corporation. That doesn't happen overnight and roles and responsibilities. And and it became a real success story for the community. It became a real success story for that individual. Uh, But most importantly, it perpetuated the legacy of the owner who unfortunately had passed away. And was, 
I'm sorry, I can't remember. Was this sales leader also a family member? He was not. He was unaffiliated. That a little bit. Was everybody just totally on board with that or did that evolve over time as well? Economic alignment was really the critical component there. We had to find a incentive plan that allowed him to invest the required time. And he put a tremendous amount of effort and time reshaping, rebuilding and, and reassuring, you know, many of their distribution partners that uh, the business was still in good standing. Wow, that really is quite a story. And he must have had the DNA because running a business, I guess people wake up every day and become entrepreneurs in this country. So I shouldn't question that at all. What I understand and the way I see it, it's certainly the will to win and the perspiration, you know, that goes into it. How is, speaking of perspiration, how are current economic conditions affecting your business in terms of what you see out there with family-run businesses and those looking to transition out? Deborah, it's a great question. We, we have been asking that question of what I call people in the streets for the last several quarters. And I am continuing to remain optimistic mm-hmm. and not seeing the signs of deterioration. So yeah. we're asking bankers and accountants, and, and their story is companies are still performing, margins are still holding up, the demand is amazingly resilient, despite what appears to be some black clouds forming. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, too. I, coming from a, a sales and marketing perspective, I always believe if the value proposition, meaning that the products, the services are offering something unique and valuable that solves big pain points and problems, and if that company operates with integrity and is well run, that there's they're going to be winners in times like this because buyers are either going to stand on the sidelines or they're going to maintain their progress and what they were intending to do. In an uncertain environment, who do you want to do that with? You want to do that with companies you trust, top to bottom, which in some ways makes me think family businesses might actually have an edge. They're well entrenched in the community and are well-run businesses. What's your take on that? I think you're exactly on point. Companies that are well-run and are valued, it's been funny. This is you know one of my first times really going through an inflationary playbook. It's very interesting from a business perspective. Very quickly, we see people having some margin expansion. And we're now in that period of really testing what is their market position and value in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And that gross margin is becoming one of those indicators of how really valued are you? And we're finding a lot of our clients are sustaining their margins that they earned over the last several months. Yes. Meaning they're not becoming commoditized. They're not giving up their margin and becoming commodity. I think this confidence in pricing is really important right now, no matter who's running the company. Would you agree? It's the reality of the marketplace, though. You have to understand where you're at. It. If you do not have value and you're not valued by the market, your margins will be the first reflection of that. And you should be very concerned and bankers should be very concerned about companies that are losing margin at this point. Yeah, very interesting. And we're speaking you know, primarily to family-run businesses seeking to transition here And so just staying with that theme for a second, do you think family businesses largely understand this point that you just made and the competitive edge they bring if they have all that and are entrenched in the community and a known family in the area? Do they understand that could be a very powerful position in terms of their position in the marketplace? 
I think most business owners are very astute financially, and I think they're very well aware of market dynamics. My observation over time is sometimes they may not appreciate a 50,000 or 30,000 foot view of their business. Mm-hmm. You know, private equity does a wonderful job coming in and simplifying their business and speaking eloquently about yeah. their models. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's very enlightening to the owners as we go through management presentations, hearing another person's view of the business that they spent 30 years running. And it's a great perspective. And we encourage our owners to have that perspective several years in advance. We, yes. we call it the value creation playbook, right? Yes. Private equities do it all the time. And if we could share that experience, we think we can add significant value to business owners. So let's go back to storytelling. And we, we just have a few more minutes left here. And I'm going to ask you at the end to kind of provide three major points for either family own companies who may listen in or who may somehow, you know, receive this or even broader companies. But unpack this storytelling piece that we talked about a little bit earlier. What are components of the story? How does that story unfold in the minds of investors? And you can give an example or give us a tutorial here, however you want to talk about it. You're hiring an investment banker to tell your story. Mm -hmm. And if, if I tell your story from a financial statement, it's one dimensional. Yeah. It doesn't tell me why you exist in the marketplace. And more importantly, it doesn't tell me what you can do in the future that you may not have already done. Mm. So we were working with a closely held family business and they had developed a friction brake product that was very unique for their end markets. Mm-hmm. And in a broader scope, when you took it out to the universe, it was just a small piece of a very large product line for a big company, but it was a missing link and they had superior intellectual property. Mm-hmm. That business on its own should have traded for six times on a good day. The business traded for north of 11 times. Wow. And the rationale was, is we had two strategic buyers that the piece fit together perfectly. And to make it even more humorous, we went on a, a tour of that very large public company that bought the business. Yeah. And they were claiming that they sold the business for a song and a dance and it became the absolute hinge pin for their growth strategy. <laughs> and so two parties, both very satisfied with the outcome, yes. Yes. both thinking that they you know, were victorious. Yes. yes. That's so the storytelling capability. That's the storytelling capability. And it sounds like it's completely authentic and genuine. And yet there's a different story for the investors and a different story for the company that's been invested in. But it's a story that has to work together in totality to be authentic. And it has to be informed. You can't make up a story and you can't throw words that don't tie together. The buyers are incredibly sophisticated and and it requires preparation to make sure you master the story. And it's the difference between a six-time sell and an 11-time sell. It's the difference between a successful outcome and one that it's okay. We, We don't like working with it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a well-run company embedded in the community, led by by family with a strong product and service offering that fits the need, whether it's that linchpin, you know, friction break, or whether it's a broader piece of the solution. These are all components to tell a great story and have a successful transition, plus the capacity, the EQ, whatever you want to call it, that you and your team have in dealing with the emotional side of this transition. That's some of my takeaways, but what are your takeaways you'd have, the audience have, and also any, you know, two or three tips that you would give? So first of all, thank you for having me on the show today. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for being here. The most important message that an owner should hear during COVID, we had a little bit of time to self-reflect. We wrote a couple white papers. One of the white papers that we wrote was preparing the owner for transition. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, we're Jim Collins' disciples. So we went and did a survey of 250 business owners that had transacted. Mm-hmm. And we did a paradigm of what did you find out and what did you think at the time that you sold? And what was your perspective two years after? The number one thing that came out of that survey was I would have started 24 months in advance. So time to preparation where it might have been six to nine months, begin 24 months in advance. Significant economic benefit could be had to you if you do. The second part that was really intriguing by that was how much your employees already knew and how much you feared notifying your employees. Big one. Um, they're very aware. They're very attuned to what's going on. I, I know they'll wake up and look at you and you, you, you're magically 65 and you're thinking about selling your business, right? <laughs> so they're, they're a little smarter and, and not to fear it, but there is a process in a way that you have to go about communicating that protects you. Don't forget your last point, but can you speak to that? What is that communication strategy? The communication strategy is one of transparency and authentication. You don't want to lie, but at the same time, you can't give the certainty that you're looking for to your employees. Right. So when you can't give the certainty, sometimes it's best off to hold back the information, but at the same time being completely transparent and authentic to your key leaders and family members. Yeah. But you have to respect that they all can't process what you're communicating in the same way as well. And so we're very actively involved in employee and family communication on these matters. So your last point, and you get the last word, so make it a good one. <laughs> Do not go it alone. We get preemptive offers all of the time. Your business is incredibly value and it's so appealing to have somebody say, oh my gosh, I'd love to buy your business. And they call you and they throw out a number that seems big to you. I think what you'll find is one offer is not really an offer. Let's make a market, even if it's two or three or a handful of people. Mm -hmm. And what we found every time is that preemptive offer isn't the best and highest terms that you can get. So use an investment banker to help make that market, even if it's to a limited audience. Yeah, that's a great last point. Don't go it alone. And certainly the CEO job is a lonely job at times. And making a decision like this and hoping to corral everyone from side to side of the business, including family members and every worker, has got to be a lonelier job. So I can see why having a great advisor alongside would be of great benefit and great comfort on the emotional side as well. So Thank you, Tom. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So great to be with you today. Very informative for me and I'm sure for others listening and viewing. Thanks again. Deborah, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Be sure to subscribe in all your favorite podcast apps. Just look for Success Beneath the Surface. Chief Outsiders, part-time growth executives with full-time results.